The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's pray. Father, you've given us something in which we can rejoice even in the midst of grievous trials. There is a purpose in the grievous trials. The text makes that clear. It's necessary. But in the midst of them, you have given us something and told us to set our minds on it. As you say later in the passage, look to it, think about it, fix our hope on it. A new living hope that you have caused us to be born again into by the resurrection of Christ. You've brought something new to us. And by and large, it is kept yet in heaven for us waiting. It is broken into this world now. We experience some of it now. But most of it awaits us yet. I pray, Lord, this morning, would You help us, Your people, to set our hopes on that. The living hope, the inheritance that is coming. It is not fading away. It is not going to perish. It will come. Turn our minds to it and help us to rejoice even now. Open up Your truth to us, Lord. Make make Your Scripture clear. Make this event that we celebrate today clear to us. Many of us here, Lord, we understand the resurrection, but help us to understand it afresh. Perhaps something new about it. Perhaps something renewed about it. There are others here, Lord, who don't know the fullness of what You have done in this weekend, Friday and Sunday. Make it clear to them for the first time and save. Lord, we look to You for this because we we need Your grace to teach us. And so I pray, open Your Word to us. Open up the event that we celebrate to us. Spirit of God, have your way with us as has already been prayed. Move among us. Save. Sanctify. Change. Move us to walk in newness of life. Thank you for what you've done. And Lord, I I thank you in advance for what you will do. I trust the promise that your word does not go forth and come back accomplishing nothing. It always fulfills your purpose. And so... 
Lord, I, I take that promise and I say, cause the word to run. Bring about your intention in each heart here this morning. Change and grow and sanctify and convict and save and honor Christ in all of it. And it is in His name that I pray. Today on Easter Sunday, we take a break from our usual study of the book of 1 Samuel to give particular attention, focus to the event of Easter, the resurrection of Christ. And to help us do that, we're going to look at, at one particular passage in the book of Acts, but not everything in that passage. It's, there's a lot there. I'll use that one passage as kind of a starting place, and then I will also touch on a few other passages to help us understand more of the the breadth of what it is that we celebrate today at Easter. We're looking at Acts chapter 4 in particular. And by the time we come to this chapter, a lot has already happened in this book. Acts opens with Jesus, who has already been crucified, already buried, and has already been raised from the dead. All the Gospels record all that. That's all already happened by the time we come to the book of Acts. And Acts picks up with Christ already raised, raised some 40 days prior. And he, we read of him interacting again with his disciples and giving them some instructions. And he tells them specifically at the beginning of the book of Acts to wait. To wait in Jerusalem until God the Holy Spirit the third person of the one triune God, until God the Holy Spirit comes. The Bible teaches that there is only one true God in this world and in any world. In all of the universe, there is one God and one God only, and He is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God the Son saying to His disciples, I'm about to leave, and I will send God the Spirit to be with you present inside of you forever, wait for him. Wait in Jerusalem. And when he comes, then you'll be my witnesses. And so they go to Jerusalem and they wait. In chapter 2, then, we read of the Holy Spirit coming on these believers and then Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. It was a Jewish feast. He comes, preaches, and the New Testament church is brought into existence in, in a massive ingathering on this day of the Feast of First Fruits. The first the harvest of the church is brought in there at Pentecost. And then by the end of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3, we read of some of the events of life inside of the church and life outside of the church as, the, as this new church, this new group of people interacts with the world in Jerusalem. Chapter 3 in particular has one event Peter and John, two apostles, on the way to the temple one day, come upon a man who's been lame for his whole life. And in the name of Jesus, they heal him, which draws a crowd because he's been lame his whole life. And it gives them a chance again to preach about Jesus, and that also gets them arrested because the authorities are not liking that. That's what brings us to our passage this morning, Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Acts 4, verse 1. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Referring to the healing. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We'll stop there. As I said, there's a lot in this passage, but I'm going to pull out just two observations both of which come from this passage and both of which relate to the resurrection. And together, they will teach us this main point. Here's my main, my main point from this morning that I'm going to be working towards. God has provided new life now and forever in Jesus. That's the point I'm working towards this morning. God has provided new life now and forever in Jesus. I'm going to work towards that by making two observations. Essentially, it's breaking in half to talk about the new life part of that and then talk about the in Jesus part of that. So begin by talking about the resurrection. Here's my first point. The resurrection of Jesus begins the resurrection of the dead to life. The resurrection of Jesus begins the resurrection of the dead to life, to new life. Jesus was, in fact, raised. That's what we celebrate today. It's Easter Sunday. It's foremost on our minds, and it was foremost on Peter's mind, on John's mind. It's, it's everywhere in the book of Acts. It was what they were thinking about as they're talking to this ruling council, what they were thinking about when they were preaching, got him arrested. Notice how verse 10, he credits the healing of this crippled man not just to Jesus, but to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. He couldn't just say Jesus. He has to tack on a couple of things. Jesus, the Christ, which is what the whole problem is. They don't think that. Jesus, the Christ, whom you crucified. There's another finger in the chest. But God overruled you and God raised him from the dead. That's who healed this man. Incredibly bold statement. 
says the same sort of thing in chapter 3, verse 15, when he's preaching to the crowd. He says to the crowd, You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. They were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And they couldn't stop talking about it because it was, and still remains today, an alarming, unexpected, marvelous fact of history. And notice that. We have to start here with this. Fact of history. This is an actual event of which men can be eyewitnesses. Which makes this biblical Christianity completely different from every other religion in the world. You need to understand something here because it is very common in, in our world today to place all kinds of, we, we call them truth claims or, or faith claims, re- religious perspectives, to place them all kind of on the same level. These folks claim this, these folks claim this, these folks say this. Duh. No, we have biblical Christianity and other. And there's something remarkably important in this event. All of the religions of the world filled with millions and millions of oftentimes many sincere and many gracious and many, many kind and many honest people. But all of them have a great similarity. They all believe, those religions and, and the people in them, that their, their prophet or their holy man or their, their teacher or their guide, whatever particular name he's given, received information a revelation, a teaching, some knowledge. In one religion, he went off into the forest and, and God appeared to him. In another religion, he went into a cave and an angel appeared to him. In other religions, there are dreams, there are visions, there are, there are study, times of study and, and revelation. It varies from religion to religion, but it's all the same. From the outside information has come and the teacher, the prophet, the holy man takes it, begins to write it down, teach it, pass it on, and people begin to believe it. Sometimes very honestly. Sometimes with, with, with great integrity. None of it with any objective evidence behind it. A great problem. A great separation between the other and biblical Christianity. All other religions of the world have a message passed on and often very earnestly and very firmly believed. But this message is built on a fact of history to which hundreds of people were eyewitnesses. Saw it with their eyes touched it with their hands, smelled it with their own noses. Jesus was dead and brought back to life. Fact. That's what they're saying in chapter 3, verse 15. We are witnesses of this. And their new boldness, their new boldness is compelling evidence that they actually saw something. You see, 
when they believed the message of this teacher, this, this Jesus, they believed that he was the king and the ruler they were looking for. They hoped in him, and all of that hope, all of that teaching was proven false as he was arrested and beaten and killed in public before all of them. This is a public event. He was captured, tried, beaten, and executed by professional executioners who succeeded at their assigned task. He's the leader. He's the one we want to follow. He's our hope. He's dead. That's a problem. A fatal problem. And so they fled. They hid. They ran away. Because not only has their hope been proven false, but they are surely next. They were, the, they were the chief followers. They are surely next. And suddenly then, just a few weeks later, in the very same city, in front of the very same people, we read, the Christ whom you crucified. Talking to the men who hold the sword over their head. Talking to a mass, a, a crowd. You killed the author of life. There's a complete 180 there in their, in their demeanor, in their behavior. Not cowering and running, crushed and afraid, but dramatically emboldened. What explains that 180 degree change? Not that they became persuaded of a teaching. They had already been dissuaded of that teaching. We are witnesses. I touched him. I ate with him. We talked. We hugged. I smelled him. He's alive. He was deader than a doornail and he is alive. That is an objective fact, an event that stands behind this faith. And notice very importantly, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that 500 other people saw him too. Not just these two guys. Hundreds of people in the same city where it happened. All changed. I need to clarify something. I have not yet said anything theological. I'm just teaching history. And that is a huge sentence. You understand why that's such a huge sentence? I haven't said anything. I'm about to say something theological. But I haven't, said, I haven't said anything theological yet. I'm just teaching the historical record. It needs to be explained as to what that record means, which is where the theology comes in. But there is something here that must be reckoned with. A man who walked around saying that he was God in the flesh, the king who would rule over all of the world, was killed and raised all in public. Fact. Well, here's where the theology comes in because we've got to ask, what does that mean? The resurrection of Jesus means something. It means the beginning of the resurrection of the dead to life. Notice carefully the language of verse 2. 
What were they proclaiming? Not just that Jesus was raised from the dead, although as we've seen, they they clearly proclaimed that again and again and again and again. But that's not what they were proclaiming. They were proclaiming, verse 2 says, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection has started. It has come in Jesus, in His resurrection. That was what they were talking about and preaching. The raising up, the resurrection of the dead, that is the raising up, not just of Jesus, but of those who have died, raising them up to a new and permanent existence, to new life. In Jesus, what His resurrection means is that new life has dawned. A new existence has broken through and come into this existence and kind of like parted this ordinary plane and planted something right there. New life. Resurrection life. If you think about this, properly speaking then, the resurrection of Jesus is not actually a miracle. Because a miracle is a temporary suspension of the way things usually are. After the miracle's over, it goes back. This is not a miracle. This is a change. Nothing goes back. It starts and grows. Like a day that dawns. There's there's a point in time when it's 3 a.m. and it is pitch black. And somewhere after that, you begin to realize, I can see across the yard. If you're out camping. I can see that tent over there. I couldn't a few hours ago. I don't know when, but somewhere in there, light began to come. And it never goes backwards. It never becomes pitch dark again. It it grows and grows and grows and full day comes. Dawn is not full day, but dawn never becomes midnight again. It never goes backwards. When Jesus was raised, He parted this existence and planted in it something. The resurrection of the dead. Something has broken in. New life has come. It starts now. It's not the fullness. It starts now. There's something here. It's growing, but it's here. And it will become fullness. So we need to think about two things. A life that has come and is already, that has started because Jesus was raised, and a life that is coming, that is not yet, but will be here because Jesus was raised. We have two things here. The now and the not yet. Let's think about what happens already. For this, I want to direct our attention to Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 6. I want to pull out a thing or two from this chapter. The larger context around this is all about salvation and about new life, which is important to keep in mind because he uses baptism here as an illustration of the new life. This isn't teaching about baptism exactly. It's teaching about new life and faith and illustrated by what happens in baptism. And we'll see some of that later as we baptize some folks. But something has broken in. Some new life has broken in here. Now look, for instance, at verse 4. He talks about, he identifies a Christian with Christ. Now in Paul's day, there was no such thing as a Christian who has not been baptized. It was... Almost an immediate thing. If you profess faith in Christ, you will be baptized to publicly identify yourself, oftentimes to your danger, to 
publicly identify yourself. So he's talking to Christians, and he, he can talk to all of them about their baptisms. Now, perhaps some Christians today have not been baptized. But he can use the two things right together because he knows I'm speaking to people who have been baptized. And when you look at your baptism, Christian, you see some identification. We were, I'm reading verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we too might walk in newness of life. You see, we're connected with Him, buried in death and raised with Him into life, that we might walk in newness of life. Very end of the verse there. You can look at your immersion into water, Christian, and you can see there... Here I am going into the grave with Jesus dead. And here I am then brought out, as he says in verse 6, the old self crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I am brought out then no longer enslaved to sin. Something new. A bondage broken. And I come back to life. We've been set free from sin, he says in verse 7. A freedom that is marvelous. Not just when Christ comes back. Already, right now, Christ raised what He has parted and planted here is a new life that is free from the dominion, he uses that word later here, from the dominion of sin, the bondage of sin. And you, identified with Him, have been placed in that life. This, he explains, is what has happened to you, Christian. It is the case. And then he turns that and then exhorts from that. Because this has happened then, Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. You have been made alive. Not to sin. Dead to sin. Made alive to God. So therefore, do not let sin come back in and control you. No. This is, there's a new life, Christian. A new life. Right now, for you, one by Christ. Walk in it. Fact, and then an exhortation to embrace and walk in that, to exercise that fact. Maybe a bit like, think of it if, if this helps, like the dynamic of riding a bike. Probably most of us here know how to ride a bike. And probably most of us here at one point didn't know how to ride a bike. Somewhere around five, six, seven, you got placed into you the skill, the, the technique of riding a bike. And now you know how, even if you don't ride for years. I, I went years without riding a bike. Got on, it's like riding a bike. <laughs> it's in me. It's in you. 
You know how to. You have the ability to ride a bike. Before, you did not. But placed in you has been is this ability to, to balance and to steer and to pedal and to make it all work so as to, to ride. But I promise you, if you take a few pedals and begin to move and stop pedaling, what will happen? No matter how good that guy is at the intersection on, on his bike, he has to start pedaling eventually or he will fall. You cannot coast forever. Having the, the knowledge of how to ride a bike, the ability to ride a bike, you must actually exercise the pedaling and the steering and the balancing. You can only do that because you know how, but you must do it. Somebody could look at the guy at the intersection and say, pedal, since you can. You can look at you Christians and say, walk in newness of life, since you can. Because Christ was raised to give you the ability. Christ was raised to come and walk with you, to give you the power. It is not done in your own strength, but you must do it. It sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. There is a tension here. The Bible will talk about work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Who works? Yes. By the power of God, you must exercise the newness of life that He has put in you. He has broken in and made a new existence here on this planet, free from the, the obligatory obedience to sin. Walk in it, Christian. Enjoy it. It is a good life. But it is not nearly as good as what is coming. We have that already, but there is more to come. This has dawned. Something has broken in, but this is growing like the sun rises. Fullness is on the way. Paul talks about that also. If you have your Bible again, flip to 1 Corinthians 15. Preach several sermons on this chapter. If you want more on this, I refer you to the, the stuff that's online. But I'll make a, a couple of observations from this whole chapter. He talks in verse 20 about how, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruit, that word about the beginning of the harvest. If you pluck the first peach off the tree, you know there are more peaches there. Here's the first one. What is it like? Ah, I bet that one's like that too. The first fruits. Christ, the first fruit. Those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Then he says in 23, the end of 22, in Christ, those who are in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end. There is 
a coming to life that has happened already for us, that we, we are awake to this new life now, but there is an awakening yet to come when Christ returns. What's that like? Well, the chapter elaborates. Flip over to verse 42. talks about what will happen when Christ comes back and we are raised bodily like He was. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown into the ground, what is buried is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We sit here perishing. An unavoidable reality. You're a second closer to your death. A second closer. Now five seconds closer. Unavoidable reality. And if we could, if we could analyze our bodies in, in a number of other different ways, we would notice we just declined in other ways as well. Lost a few gray cells here. Skin got a little thinner over there. The wrinkle grew. We sit here perishing. With bodies that are subject to decay and decline and disease and dementia, wasting away while we sit. This is the kind of thing that we, particularly in our culture, spend a whole lot of money trying to deny. But it's unavoidable. We are perishing, perishable. And that's what will be sown into the ground, raised though gloriously imperishable, no longer to be ravaged by age or illness or simple failing, a body made perfect. What is sown is plagued with dishonor. We are creatures overrun with shame and humiliation. Sometimes in particular circumstances, we do something that's silly that embarrasses us. But just our very beings, just the very fact that we put on clothes when we come to gather here reveals there is something in our essence that is dishonorable. There is shame on us. There is humiliation. I'm speaking just physically, let alone spiritually. There is a reality to this fallenness that is dishonorable. But a day is coming raised in glory as true sons and daughters of the King on whom He pours out all of His pleasure, as I said earlier, to whom He says, Greetings, welcome. sown in weakness, sown a natural body. We are 
creatures that were originally made in the image of God and now we struggle. We are in natural bodies. We struggle to to respond to God and are prone to wander away from Him. And every day, even though the new life has dawned, we still must be exhorted to walk in the newness of life because it is a constant temptation to veer away from Him. We are natural people. We respond to the world around us, to inclinations in our heart that say, doubt God. Do not believe Him. That's in us. And we respond to that. And it is a tragedy. We are natural people, weak, dishonorable, and perishing. But Christ has come out of the grave, not just to give us the possibility of new life now, but to wipe it all away one day when He comes. It is a glorious truth. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised in glory imperishable, spiritual in power. Glorious. Glorious. And the world will all be made new. The place where we live now, not just you and me, not just the people in it, but the world around us all groans under the burden of us. And it will be made new. And the kingdom will come and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven and earth will be joined together in glorious renewal. Because Christ has come out of the grave imperishable and glorified in power, enthroned to reign, and so will we. And so will we. And so will you if you are in Christ. Which takes me to the second point. Here's the second observation, which is shorter. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be raised to life other than Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be raised to life other than this raised Jesus. That's Peter's conclusion as he's speaking to the ruling council back in Acts chapter 4 now. He speaks to them and he comes to the end and says, Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the point, and it is an urgent one. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Twice he mentions salvation. There is salvation in no one else. We must be saved. And all that I've been talking about, all the new life that that has broken in now and is made available now and that is coming in glory one day, 
all of that is a real, distinct, wonderful possibility. But it is not reality for any of us at first by nature. At first by nature. Life is not coming to us at first by nature. Because we all stand condemned under the verdict of wrath and death by nature. By justice. From a God who is righteous and just. It is the foundation of His throne. Says the Bible repeatedly. If He is anything, He is righteous and just. And that's why we are perishing and dishonored and weak and merely natural. We are living out of verdict that hangs over us and is blossoming into its fullest expression when we die by nature. And not blossoming into... uh, I've talked about something that's been planted here and is growing and will come to fullness. Not that. Not a a beautiful blossoming, but the blossoming of, of death. Of the fullness, not of new life, but the fullness of God's wrath poured out upon us dead as we go to the hell of God's fury. From this we must be saved. You must be saved. Saved from the right and good and appropriate and necessary wrath of God that is against you because of your sin and the way that you in your sin have dishonored and destroyed and rendered perishable God's good creation and dishonored His name. It is right and good and necessary that His wrath come. And do not be confused by the false teachers of the world that try to convince you you are not a sinner. God is quite clear on this. Have you ever misled anybody? Ever told a lie? Have you ever lusted after or desired a person of the opposite sex? Have you ever taken anything that did not belong to you or longed for what others had? Then you covet and steal and commit adultery and lie. Four of the Ten Commandments. Which, worse, means you break the first and greatest commandment where God said, You shall have no other gods before Me but shall love Me with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And every moment of our lives says, No, I will not. It is right and necessary and good that the just God send wrath to destroy. His verdict is absolute. It is unwavering. It is crystal clear. And it is damning for you. You must be saved. And God, the amazing absolutely unexpected glorious truth is that God in His great mercy God in His great mercy say that again in your minds God in His great great 
mercy. Because of the love with which He loved us, has provided one name under heaven by which we must be saved. One name among all names. One man among all men and women. There is no one else. One name, Jesus. And He has proven that by raising Him from the dead. Fact of history. In Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead has come. In Jesus, and in Jesus alone, there is salvation from wrath and death to life and joy and hope. That is good news. That's what makes Good Friday good. We, we have a, a, a society, we even have a church culture that mistakenly puts our weight on certain holidays and overlooks others. I, th- I think it's fair to say that Christmas is, is more widely celebrated in our society than is Easter. And that Easter is more widely celebrated than Good Friday. There are many churches that don't even celebrate Good Friday. It grieves me. Without Good Friday, what is Easter? Without Good Friday and Easter, what is Christmas? What makes Good Friday good is that Christ on Good Friday went to the cross. God's gift. God's gift to a fallen and evil world. God's gift of His own Son. God the Father sent God the Son fully God. The Bible teaches how through God the Son all created things were created. Everything that was ever created was created through Jesus. And then He became part of the creation. Amazing. Why? For the sake of Good Friday. For the sake of you, if you will trust Him. For the sake of going to the cross to bear in Himself wrath that was coming on each one of us lawbreakers. A glorious gift. He came for the sake of redeeming, for the sake of buying back from the grave and giving life to some of humanity. To whom? Not all. Only to some. To whom? Worth pausing there to ask, do you care to know? I pray you do. To some, not to all, to some. To whom? To all those who trust His death on the cross alone. To be the death that bears God's wrath. Do not be confused. Some teach that we do something and then He kind of tacks on the the rest at the end. The verdict and the penalty against our sin is death. 
just on the face of it, nobody, 35% dies. And then Jesus picks up the other 65% of death. You either die or you don't. Either I die under my own sin and bear the wrath of God forever, or Jesus dies under my sin, one or the other. And to all those who trust Him and His death alone, He buys them out of the grave, frees them from life, from death, and gives them life now and in fullness to come. an offer. Be careful that you do not refuse it. It is, it, is, it is an offer that cannot be refused. I've seen the Godfather. It is, it is the offer that cannot be refused. And tragically, we keep reading the story They refused it. Not on the facts. The tomb's empty. Everybody knows that. They paid off off the guards to keep quiet about it. The man that Jesus healed is standing right there in front of them. They don't refuse it on the facts. This is not a problem with the facts. They rejected the facts and the truth that they point to not because it was not clear, but because it was not what they wanted. Watch out that that not be you. The tragedy is that most people in the world, and even as I'm speaking right now, I bet a dollar that there are some here who are hearing what I'm saying and are rejecting it because you do not like it. That's the reason you don't like what I'm saying. Because you don't like it. You do not want there to be one and only one way to be saved. Never seeing the grace of God that He would provide a way in the first place. You want there to be your way to be saved. Need we find any more evidence for the rejection of God and human pride? Let's be clear about that. That's human pride. It's a rejection of God that says, I want my way, not yours. You don't want there to be one and only one way. You don't want there to be a need to be saved in the first place, never minding the abundant evidence of sin in your own life and in the world. There is a a problem that needs to be fixed, and it lives in here, in your heart too. You've been taught, perhaps, that if you do the right, you will become worthy. But the Bible says that you can never become worthy and nothing you can do merits anything in the sight of God. Only Christ's cross does. Christ's death on the cross alone is the sufficient payment, not part of it, all of it, for all those who trust Him. I urge you then, trust Him and be raised to life. There's a tremendous offer on the table in front of you. Do not walk away from it. 
an offer that new life would be born in you, breaking in right now, forever changing. You would live a new life now and one day find not wrath but glory. There is great hope offered to humanity in the resurrection of Christ. All of it based on a fact of history. He came out of the grave bodily in power, was raised to heaven and will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Trust Him now and find life. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. And if you already have been reconciled to God, then rejoice in the grace of God that He has poured out on you and then walk in this newness of life now, setting your hope on ever rejoicing in the inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Coming. Christian, you are most fortunate. You are not a Christian. You are most fortunate to have this chance right now. In the name of God, then I plead with you, be reconciled to Him. Trust Christ alone for your sin. Let me pray. Lord, would You open our eyes. Open the eyes of men and women and boys and girls in this room those who believe in You and those who do not. Those who think they do but don't. Those who know they don't. All of us, Lord. Open our eyes. Give us graciously, graciously give us sight. Move us to follow You, to embrace You, to surrender to You. And stir in us thankfulness and worship. As we sit and reflect, and then as we sing, and then as we see the baptisms, stir in us worship and cause us to cling to You. Thankful for the life You give us now and for the life You are going to give us one day. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. Build Your church, I pray. And thankfulness, Christ, I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.